So God came to Moses, who was an Israelite, but had grown up an Egyptian, adopted by Pharaoh's family. And God tapped Moses on the shoulder and said, hey, I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to tell him to set your people free, set the Israelites free. And Moses, if you remember the story, he's not a very eloquent speaker, and so he's pretty nervous about that task. He's not only nervous about whether Pharaoh's going to listen to him, but he's also nervous about whether the Israelites are actually going to believe uh, that God you know, sent him to, to lead them out. He really hadn't grown up amongst that people. And so he's kind of thinking, man, what if they don't believe me when I come to them? So in Exodus 3.14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So I am was the name that God used for himself. So it's no surprise that, you know, centuries, centuries later, when God arrives in flesh on planet earth in the person of Jesus Christ, one of the ways that Jesus made it clear that he was God was by using that same name throughout his teaching. So just in the gospel of John alone, Jesus refers to himself as, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And today we'll see another I am declaration in John 15, I am the true vine. So our last series, If You Love Me, was taken from a verse in John chapter 14. In John chapters 14 through 17, if you had one of those Bibles with the words in red, it's just all red, pretty much. It's, it's Jesus giving this long teaching discourse to his disciples um, right before his impending death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. And he's trying to prepare them for what to expect um, and how to move forward without his physical presence there. Because he's like, I want you guys to carry on the ministry, continue the good work of spreading the good news of my love and my offer of salvation for all people. So in John 14, he had told them to show their love by keeping, their, keeping his commands and that he was going to send the Holy Spirit to dwell in them, to give them the power so that they could live those things out and follow him and obey him. So after the Last Supper, Jesus gets up and he's walking with his remaining disciples up to the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays. And he would have gone by several vineyards along the way, pretty common to that region of the world. And so Jesus seizes this imagery as a teachable moment to talk about the kind of intimacy that we would need in our love relationship with Christ. He gets to the how do we go about loving him? What does it look like? So vines and vineyards were, were common symbols of the nation of Israel throughout their history, dating back hundreds of years. So I want you to open your Bibles up to Isaiah chapter 5. It's page 978. So the prophet Isaiah wrote uh, around 700 B.C., okay, before Christ. And in chapter 5, he writes this. He says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. 
He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my own in my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I look for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So in the song of the vineyard, the prophet Isaiah and God speaking through him is saying, I look to the nation of Israel to be producing some good fruit, but that's not what I found. The father had set them up to succeed. He'd lovingly cultivated the soil to get them ready to produce, but Israel was corrupt. And so God sent judgment on them. Now, vines remained uh, this integral symbol for Israel for, for years and years to come. Right up to the time before Christ, you can find, uh, these are a couple of coins, if you can put that slide up there. On the left is a coin from the, uh, during the Roman Empire in the, in the region of Judea around Jerusalem, right before Christ. You see the, the vine there in the middle. The one on the right is the first coin of the new nation of Israel after World War II. In 1949, that's one of their first coins. Again, the imagery of the vine um, is there. So this, this imagery has been, you know, steeped into their minds over hundreds and hundreds of years. But Israel failed because they tried to produce fruit without staying connected to God. In Romans 9, Paul explained it like this. Romans 9, 31 and 32, it says, But the people of Israel who pursued the law of righteousness have not attained the goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. So they were missing this connection with their creator. They were just kind of scurrying around trying to, to do things in their own strength. So because these Jewish disciples of Jesus would have grown up with this vineyard and vine imagery in their heads, that sets Jesus up for this new imagery that he wants to introduce in John chapter 15. So I want you to turn now to John 15. It's page 1537. We're going to read verses 1 through 5 today, but we're going to be spending the next eight weeks kind of going through to verse 17. So we're just going to be taking a couple of verses a week, okay? But I'm going to read the first five just to get a little context here this morning. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, 
you can do nothing. So we're just going to focus on those first two verses today. And Jesus starts out by saying, I am the true vine. So what truth is Jesus trying to convey in just that statement and really just kind of the last two words? What does it mean that Jesus, first of all, is the true vine with the emphasis on that word true? What's he trying to communicate there? If there's a truth, then there has to be a false, right? What's the false vine? Yeah. Yeah, good. Anything else that you would seek potentially could be a, a false vine. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah. Everything else is what? Okay. Everything else is an imposter. Good. Okay. What did some of the people in the nation of Israel try to kind of stake their claim on? They would kind of say that, hey, we're good because what? We're what? We're God's people. We're the children of Abraham. We're fine. We're in. Right? And Jesus is saying, no. The nation of Israel, Abraham, they're not the true vine. I am. Okay? And what, is he, what truth is he trying to communicate by saying that he's a vine? What's, what's all encapsulated into that imagery? Yeah. Okay, source of nourishment, a source of life, okay? So I'm the true vine, that, that just speaks a lot. I'm the true vine, I'm the word become flesh. Jesus says that he is the vine, and then he says the father is the gardener. And it's interesting in the gospel of John, anytime you see Jesus and the father kind of mentioned, they're never mentioned doing things kind of separately from one another, independent of each other. Anytime you see them together in the Gospel of John, they're always cooperating together in every activity. There's this intimate relationship that Jesus has with God that he's trying to get everybody else to understand, right? That's why in John 17, he prays that people would understand that I and the Father are one, right? And that they would have that same kind of oneness. He's trying to say, this is what it's like for me and God, and I want you to have that with one another and with me, okay? I'm the vine. He says it again in verse five, in case you missed it the first time. And the father is the gardener. So who are we in this story? We are what? We're the branches, right? You are the branches. Jesus had given his disciples and us an identity, a role, okay? Jesus is the vine, God is the gardener, we are the branches. And if you think about a vine, I'm not a very good artist, this is the vine right here, right? And a branch, right? So he's, he's painting this picture of complete dependence and constant connection. Complete dependence and constant connection, okay? Branches don't grow on their own. Right? You throw a branch on the ground by itself in your yard and all the leaves will die. Right? Cannot survive. And that's why in, 
in verse five, he, he says again, it's like, hey, apart from me, you can do nothing. A branch is incapable, right? Because the vine is rooted to the ground and it's drawing up the nutrients or just like a trunk in a tree, it's drawing up the nutrients to provide to the branch. <laughs> so without the nutrients, the branch dies. So he's warning them, don't be like Israel was, not producing fruit <laughs> back in the times of Isaiah. And guys, it's really hard for us to understand <clears throat> how revolutionary this relationship was that Jesus was describing. This was a new intimacy with Christ. God in the flesh had ushered in. Before Jesus, God was not easily accessible. All right? God met with the nation of Israel once a year in the Holy of Holies, this special room in the temple in Jerusalem. And the high priest was the only one that could go into that room and they would make a sacrifice for the people of Israel. He was the only guy that got to go in there. You couldn't see God. He was someone to be worshiped and feared, but not touched and known like Jesus was. That's part of the reason why Jesus was so offensive to the religious leaders when he came. He was too human. They didn't know what to do with him. Who was this God who laughed and sang and danced and touched and hugged and listened and came to your house for dinner? I mean, do you realize how foreign that is to an Israelite that had no concept of a sense of intimacy with God. And then Jesus comes along in the flesh and he's interacting just like humans do with us. It's just mind blowing. It's really hard for them to wrap their minds around. We're just kind of used to that idea. Jesus was a lot to get used to. And he's saying, hey, even when I'm gone, I'm gonna send my spirit to you. It's gonna, it's gonna be in you. It's gonna allow you to continue to have this very close and personal relationship like you've had with me these three years that we've been together as he's talking to his disciples. By assigning us a role as branches, he's also giving us a sense of belonging. Okay, because you guys go out in your yard and you've got a tree and it's got a lot of different branches but they're all connected to one trunk, right? One vine, okay? We share community with one common source. We're a part of something bigger than ourselves. And we take joy in the collective abundance. We celebrate the whole tree and the fruit that it produces. And we look around and we see such diversity amongst the branches, right? And we come into our church and we see the church around the world, every tongue, tribe, and nation all connected to one trunk together, grafted in all of us by God's grace. And very quickly into this analogy, Jesus kind of defines the role of the gardener. I'll take a look at verse two again. This is what the gardener does. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. So we, before we dive into kind of what this means, I wanna 
you know, back the train up just a couple chapters to what had just happened. Okay, you have to remember that at the Last Supper, some things had gone down. Okay, Judas had gotten up to leave the table and he'd walked out of the room and kind of set the wheels in motion for his betrayal. So that had just happened. At the same time, Jesus turns and looks at Peter, Peter who thought he was Jesus' most loyal follower, and he tells him, before the sun comes up, you're going to dis disown me three different times. You're going to deny me. Keep those things in mind as we read Jesus' words here. See, one thing the gardener does is it cuts off every branch that isn't bearing fruit. Here's something that we need to keep in mind. Fruitless branches take sap away from fruitful ones. Okay? Don't you love it how I talk like I, I know what I'm talking about? Sure, this happens all the time out there in nature land. But guys, the principle is this. They're life suckers. Life suckers. You ever been around people, even in church, that just seem to suck the life out of things? We won't mention any names here. No elbowing, wink, winks, okay? But there are folks that are present at church every week. You may have known these people across the course of your history of going to church, but they certainly aren't adding any joy. They're not adding any peace, any life to the community. They're just there. And they have a different agenda for being there. Usually kind of self-serving or maybe just trying to please somebody else who they think wants them to be there. And so the father sometimes lovingly removes them from church so that they don't hinder or distract others from Christ. I know some folks can read that warning like I have over the course of following Jesus and get concerned about whether God will cut me off? <laughs> Am I one of those people that he's going to cut off and throw into the fire? Anybody worried about that or have ever thought that? Maybe not worried this morning, but maybe you've thought that at some point in your life, right? Okay, am I going to be one of those people? So let's make something clear. Let's, let's turn back to John 10. Okay, just a couple pages back. Verse 27 Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hands. Okay? So if you were the father's sheep, nothing will snatch you out of his hand. He's got you, okay? Your eternity is secure. If someone is cut off from the vine, it's because they were never connected to begin with. Okay, that would describe Judas. It would describe a lot of people in the crowds that came to listen to Jesus. You see examples like John chapter 6, you can go there. Jesus gives a really kind of hard teaching about what it means to follow him, what it demands to be a follower of his, because he's kind of trying to sift out 
people who are just in it for the show and for what Jesus could do for them or the people that really want to pursue and get to know God. And so there's a huge part of that crowd in John chapter 6 that just says, you know what, this is too hard, and they just leave. Those people were never connected to begin with. Okay? So many people who saw and heard Jesus teach had a different agenda for him. They didn't want to bend their will to God's. They wanted Jesus to bend his will to their plans and their vision for what a Messiah should be and do. And so God cuts them off before they destroy the whole vine. That's why God had to cut Judas out of the story. We also have to be careful as protectors of God's vineyard to not allow life suckers to damage the fruit producers even here at our church, Wellspring. We have to be careful, okay? But I want you to remember this, okay? We gotta keep this in mind. Jesus kept Judas around for three years knowing what he was going to do. He gave him multiple opportunities to surrender his misguided agenda to him. He loved him, he served him, he washed his feet. He had a place for him at the table of his last supper. He was like, man, come on, <laughs> figure this out. Let go of what it is you want me to do or who you want me to be and get on board with what we're doing here. But when his heart didn't turn, it was time for Judas to go. He was getting too destructive, potentially destructive for the mission. The second half of verse two is where the real beauty of God's heart comes out. Here we see evidence again of God's desire to see us flourish and be more productive. Scripture is clear on, on a couple things regarding this truth. There's a couple verses I wanna share with you. One from Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And Matthew 7, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. God created and chose you to do good works and to bear fruit, okay? It's what we will naturally do when we are connected to a healthy and powerful and strong vine. Remember last week, we talked about this kingdom principle of multiplication. You guys remember that? That God, our Father, is an exponential God. It's almost like that air conditioner is burning over there. What's going on over there, Rick? <laughs> um, he will do everything in his power, right, to grow and, and impact the world with the fruit that we are trying to produce. And I just thought about this, guys. Imagine his heart for us, right? We are God's chosen children, all of us hopefully sitting here. And God says that only a few are on that path. There's only a few in this world that have recognized and obeyed and, and acknowledged that Jesus is Lord and Savior of the life. 
And so when he sees some people who are like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to move towards Jesus. I'm trying to be with him. He is so quick to, to want to take whatever it is, whatever good fruit that we have. And he's like, man, I want to multiply that. His heart is so for us. He wants us to thrive, right? Because we are his ambassadors. He's like, my plan for reaching the world is the people, the children that I've chosen, right? You guys are my ambassadors. So he wants us to thrive and be fruitful. And when the gardener sees a healthy branch that's producing some good fruit in the world, he jumps at the opportunity to maximize it. He prunes it, okay? Now, one of the things I've learned, and maybe you guys know this, the, um, if you're creating a vineyard, the first three years, you cut the branches back, you prune it. A, a new vineyard really doesn't allow the, the, the vines to, to hold grapes until the fourth year. What they're trying to do is strengthen those branches, allow them to grow a little bit and then cut them back, grow and cut them back, grow and cut them back, so that when the weight of the fruit comes, they don't crumble under it. They're able to hold themselves up. Right, just like if you have a, a toddler who's just learning to walk, you don't you know, put a 20 pound weight on them, right? You let them grow up a little bit so they're strong enough to handle it, okay? So just to clear things up, because this topic, this word fruit kind of gets tossed around, okay? What, is, what does it mean in the Bible when it says fruit? Okay, we just looked at a verse that talks about bearing good fruit, okay? Spiritually, what is spiritual fruit? Yeah. Okay, so it could be the fruits of the spirit. Okay, that's one thing that could be fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Okay, so evidence of those things in, in your character. What else? What else could be fruit? Yeah, read. The kind of what now? Okay, yeah, the different growth that comes in our life as we challenge maybe some lies that we believe at different times. Yeah, Phil. Okay. Things that bring sustenance and life to the entire church. So it could be people that you've impacted, right? They could be the fruit of your labors, okay? Ministries that have begun or started out of your obedience could be fruit, okay, that's being produced. So all those things would, would categorize themselves as fruit, okay? And there is a danger in too much too soon. Pruning is literally translated in Greek as cleansing, okay? God has to address the sin that hinders us from producing quality fruit. Our pride, our desire for control, our apathy, our jealousy, our bitterness, our materialism, whatever it is you wanna fill in the blank there, will not be allowed to remain and thwart God's plans for the gospels to go out in the world in an attractive and compelling way. He will deal with that, that thing that becomes a hindrance to how we represent and reflect him, okay? 
Judas was cut off, but Peter was pruned. Now, Peter was cocky as all get out, okay? He claimed to be willing to die for Jesus, but then he took pretty severe action to make sure he didn't get arrested, right? He whips out a sword and cuts off somebody's ear. And then he kind of denies knowing Christ to kind of save his neck again so he doesn't get picked up and put in jail. But God had big plans for Peter. And this lowest moment of his life when he denies Jesus was a part of God's pruning process to humble him. You guys, over the course of the last few months, I've mentioned a lot of you guys have listened to the podcast about the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Right? It's this big church in, in Seattle around the turn of the century, started by a guy named Mark Driscoll, who was just 26 when he started this church, so he's pretty young, okay? So he starts this church, a lot of success, and they said that when that happens, especially when, it, when you're talking about big church growth, they said often the leaders, their character development couldn't keep, keep pace with their charisma, their character development couldn't keep pace with their charisma or their success, okay? We should be concerned when we don't sense God pruning us in our life. We should sense him disciplining us and training us and correcting us and teaching us and breaking us down, melting our impurities, and then reforming us more and more into the image of Christ, we should literally be able to tell that those kinds of things are going on in us. So I just want to ask you a question. I'm not going to ask you to answer, but just something for you to keep in mind, okay? Have you seen that pruning process in your life in the last year? Would I, if I sat down with you in a conversation after the service and I said, kind of describe what's the pruning process looked like in your life? in the past year? Where has God been cutting you back? Maybe getting rid of some of the stuff that just wasn't really reflecting him well to build your character up in a stronger way so that when he does bring more abundant fruit to you, you're gonna be able to handle it in a way that doesn't you know, make your head explode because you're so prideful, <laughs> okay? Or maybe he's dealing with the fact that you have really low self-esteem and you can't imagine yourself doing something with great for God. And maybe he needs to cut away those parts of you that, that don't believe that you are who God says you are, that he could use you to do amazing things. Sometimes it's not always just the cocky people who are the problem. Sometimes it's the people that don't believe in, in their own identity in Christ enough to believe that God could use them. And you also are a hindrance to the kingdom because you're selling yourself short of what God might use you to do. It goes both ways, folks. Judas wasn't interested in the pruning process. His agenda for Jesus was more important than his character development. Guys, there's a lot of people that come to church and just claim to be Christians that really what they want is just Jesus to be on the ready when they need him. Hey, Jesus, I'll let you know when I need you for something. Something big's coming up and I really need you to come through or I've got this, you know, somebody's sick and I need you to heal them or, you know, I'm in a jam financially. I need you to come and rescue me. 
they kind of just use Jesus for their agenda. Guys, he is the king of kings. He is not here for your agenda. We are here for his. He's in charge. He's the one worthy to be worshiped, not us. Judas was a disconnected branch. Now, Peter was a mess, okay? If you read the gospels, that's undeniable. But here's what I know about Peter. Peter stayed at the table. Peter stayed in community, right? After Jesus' death and, and the craziness of the silence of Saturday and then the resurrection and the disciples still don't know what's going on, it says that some of them were in this, this upper room praying and waiting for kind of the next step, wondering what's going to happen. And Peter was there. Even after his biggest failure, he was in community. He was there. He was staying in the game. Even when he'd gotten it wrong. And that allowed the gardener access to him to cut away the unproductive parts of him so that later on, like we find out in the book of Acts, he's able to hold the weight of abundant fruit, right? Peter starts preaching and says thousands of people come to Jesus. Can you imagine the weight of that? If he hadn't stayed in the game, if he hadn't allowed Jesus to restore him, he wouldn't have been able to handle that. God probably wouldn't have used him to do it to begin with. If we're wondering about our current fruit production, right? Because I'm sure that as we're sitting here today, we're wondering, what does my current fruit production mean for where I'm at in this process? How cooperative I'm being with the, with the pruning process? <laughs> Am I allowing God to, to cut away those parts of my character that don't reflect him very well so that I can be built up so I can handle more fruit? Right? Jesus wants the whole world to know him. That means that every Christian, because there aren't a lot of us in this world, we've got to be ready to bear some fruit. Where are we at in this process? Well, I think this would be a good thing to kind of reflect on, a posture for us to have, a prayer maybe that we can pray. David wrote this in Psalm 139. It's a good place to start. In verses 23 and 24, he said, Search me, God. And know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Man, what a really good prayer. For us, maybe this week, as you spend time with God, maybe you could come back to this. This would be a great prayer to write down at least these couple verses, write it down on a little note card, put it on your mirror, put it on your steering wheel this week. If you really want to be someone who's used by him, that doesn't want to get cut off, that's, that's one of, I want to be connected to you. I want you to produce good things in me. Say this, God, search me, man. Kind of like what we talked about back in Psalm 19 earlier, right? Where are my hidden flaws? Maybe you invite somebody in your life around you who might speak honestly to you. What am I not seeing about my character right now that doesn't look like Jesus that needs to change so that he'll use me more? 
is there any offensive way in me? Would you root it out and lead me in the way of everlasting? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to come and to learn what it means to remain in you and to stay connected. And really, this is just kind of an ongoing theme 